You're listening to Women Making Waves. Patrice Lawrence feels we're living in a world where writers of colour are still underrepresented. Patrice writes stories that reflect families who don't have a voice or face in the world of books. Initially, Patrice's debut book, Orange Boy, faced resistance from publishers and their reluctance to present this new and different story. It was later shortlisted for the Costa Children's Book Award and won the bookseller YA Prize and Waterston's Prize for Older Children's Fiction. Patrice Lawrence speaks to Susie Thorpe. Award-winning writer of stories for children and young people, Patrice Lawrence is charmed by London music and sci-fi. She loves reading stories that confound stereotypes and feels very strongly about the need to mirror the diverse range of lives and experiences she sees around her every day in her own writing. Hello, Patrice. When did you discover, Patrice, there were not enough representations of you in stories? Um, To be honest, I never, ever expected that I would be in a story. So I think for me to say, you know, did I ever expect to see myself represented? It's like, I don't know, saying, Patrice, do you want to be a strawberry? Because it was just so random and surreal that I should ever be there. I mean, I grew up, I was born in the UK and I grew up in the 70s and 80s in Sussex and a lot of the books I read were, I suppose, the classic books, you know, Secret Garden, Heidi, um, Wind in the Willows, um, uh, Little Women, all of those type of books. And there were never anybody um, that looked like me. And also I sort of grew up in a in a family where my stepdad's Italian, my mum's Trinidadian, you know, they weren't married, everything about us was different. So for me it was an absolute impossibility. Mm-hmm. So I mean I think the first time I thought that we could actually be in books, as in UK people of colour as opposed to sort of American, when I was <laughs> I was thirty-two and um I just had a baby who was two weeks old and it was December. And I turned on the TV and it was the BBC adaptation of Mallory Blackman's Pickart Boy. And I'd been writing for a long time, but never put people of colour in, in, in stories because I just thought, we're just not in stories, not in on writing, not, not, you know, not on the page. And then suddenly it's like, oh, my goodness, we could be. And it's just like this door opened for me. Yeah. The idea that you discover something like this at the age of 32, Patrice, is absolutely heartbreaking because you, me, we should all be reading books reflecting all of society. It's a loss to all of us, really. I mean, absolutely. I think, you know, we can find our world through books because so we can find ourselves, but also others. And it helps us develop our empathy, our knowledge, our care, you know, our kindness. And I think one of the things I grew up in, in sort of uh, West Sussex and, um, the secondary school I went to, there was probably less than 10 of us out of 16, 1700 who weren't white. Um, and I had a good time at school. I have good friends. I was quite academic. But I remember, you know, the only thing we learned about uh, people of African descent was that we were enslaved. So nothing about how we fought abolition or nothing at all. And I remember our headmaster doing an assembly about um, Jesse Owens, the, the sprinter, and it's the first time I'd heard of him. And I just sat there in the middle of this assembly with all these sort of white students around me feeling so proud, thinking that actually we did do things, we did achieve. So it's how you sort of, your identity is seen to be powerful to others is important too. And I think we 
can do that in books by making all different people heroes and heroines. Mm. You were brought up in a mixed-race family. How important is it to recognise families, I mean, all family units, when trying to connect people to read? For me, that's absolutely essential. And when I do school talks, I talk about the fact that all the things that made me feel different and to some degree made me feel lesser are all the things that made me a better writer. So I've never lived in a family where we're all the same colour. So the first family I lived in was um, a foster family because my mum was the only one of her siblings, her family, who came to England. So she was the second youngest of 12 and she came from Trinidad just to train to be a nurse and then met my biological father who had come from Guyana. They brought up in Barbados and trained to be a nurse and they were both sort of early 20s, uh, Brighton 60s parties and suddenly my mum is pregnant. <laughs> um, and it was just also just pre the abortion act so I think my dad wanted her to sort of terminate the pregnancy and she didn't want to. So the choices were really for me to be adopted as obviously quite a lot of people my age were if their parents weren't married. But I was privately fostered from the age of four months to four years with a family in Brighton who were absolutely lovely, sort of white working class family, really cared for me and nurtured me. Um, and then I went to, back to live with my mum who had met my Italian stepdad then. So, and then I've got two brothers from there. And when I sort of write my stories, I always write about families, quite often where there might be a family, where there might be a bereavement or a single parent family or families with a new book where one character's mum marries the other character's dad. And when I talk in schools, it's so relatable to young people, absolutely. And to see that families are all shapes and all colours and, uh, and have their place in books. You're brilliant at writing from different perspectives, Patrice. Do you think men have this ability too? I don't know. I think it's interesting with um, Orange Boy, I've got a really brutal writing group. And in the first few drafts of it, they say, like, no, Marlon, that is not a boy. That's just you, Patrice, with a boy's name. And it's like, oh, you know, like he's wearing trousers. And, you know, and it's like, no, he just sounds like you. So I actually had to do a lot of research. And two things actually worked for me. One was just the basic thing of asking, particularly my writers group who had teenage sons and other friends who had teenage sons, really just to observe them, think if it sounded real. And secondly was I changed the story from third person to first person because originally it was a really close, you know, um, close point of view third person. But by actually changing to first person, I could see through Marlon's eyes. I could think how he would sit on the bus. I could think how he would see how people project things onto him. I could really visualise and, and get under his skin. Um, but it did take a lot of research because obviously I'm writing not just from a different gender, but from a different age and, you know, having not grown up in London. So it did take a lot of research. Um, but I'm just lucky that I know a lot of people are willing to ask, answer quite intimate questions yeah, yeah. about what it is. For Marlon, it's also because I'm writing about a young black boy who gets involved in crime. The temptation is for people to read it as stereotypes or to read it as an archetype. And so it was really important for, for me to make him very much an individual. So that's why he's, you know, geeky and sci-fi and he's, he sort of clings to the music, you know, that is that, that inherited from his dad. Um, whereas Bailey and Indigo Donut, I really kind of wanted a really kind uh, boy who's really uh, comfortable with his kindness, I think. Mm -hmm. So I think I was writing a bit of an archetype there, but, you know. Besides reading your books, what other ways are you trying to reach people to find your books? I think that's one of the joys of school visits and going into secondary schools, which I do quite quite a lot. Um, I was lucky enough this year to be part of the 
uh, Hay Festival Scribblers Tour. So it's they work with five universities in Wales and um, schools can elect to come bring in usually year eight, nine or ten students, the ones who wouldn't normally go to university. And uh, a, they choose two writers, well, four writers, two middle grade next year, two, sorry, next week, two young adult writers. So this year it's me and Brian Conahan, both who kind of grew up working class environments. So we could talk about our journey, about how, you know, someone like me who would never, ever um, dream that their mum would go into Waterstones and say, you know, that's my daughter, you know, and about everything that told me that I couldn't be a writer, made me a writer. Uh, I also have a secret weapon, <laughs> which is my teenage diary from when I was 13. <laughs> So that is incredibly relatable, even though they cringe a lot on my behalf. Um, and I also talk, when I've done other sort of workshops, I talk about different types of stories, for instance, how Pixar uses fear and things like um, Toy Story and Up to create, you know, our sympathy for characters. Um, I talk about Korean dramas, which have fantastic arcs in their um, in their episodes. And also spoken word poetry, how there's some brilliant young spoken word poets who record on video and um, talk about things that are incredibly relatable to, to lots of young people. So there are kind of different ways that we can think about how words and stories can be used. You said that music is really important in your books and sci-fi as well. How do you use it in your books, Patrice? Yes, um, sci-fi was more in, in um, the first the first. Um, book in Orange Boy, mainly because it was sort of an accident in that I wrote the original paragraphs at a crime writing course just from a writing prompt and I had no idea that it was going to be a book. And I've chosen Marlon's name simply because that was a name of a boy in my daughter's class in primary school. And then when I wrote, started writing the book, I was thinking, oh my gosh, you know, I am writing a black boy that's getting involved in crime. I want to explore that because there are a lot, a lot of knife crime in, in Hackney where I live, but I can't make this boy a, a stereotype. So all I thought was like, how would he get his name? Well, Marlon Brando was <laughs> Superman's dad in a film when I was a kid. So what if his dad was really into sci-fi? And my biological dad was really into Isaac Asimov and, and Star Trek. So I kind of bought that over and I loved The Matrix, well, the first one, the other two of it. So all of those things. And music, I think, is something that really combined us. You know, that sense of when you go to sort of live music and everybody's singing the same chorus. Um, so I think music, also for music for me is mood as well. So I use a lot of that to sort of shape mood and bring people together. All of what you've written so far really, really matters to you. And it's not just becoming an author, but it's all about changing perceptions as well. Oh, absolutely. And you can see, you can really see the difference it makes, you know, when I've had sort of young people and sometimes adults well who have experienced some of the uh, issues that I just I talk about in the books. Um, and I think one of the things I talk about when I do school visits is in my biological father who died when I was in my, when I was in, in my 20s and he was in his 40s and he'd had a breakdown. He'd uh, been in prison for a month for just for forging a cheque. But because he's a nurse, obviously he couldn't work and then he couldn't um, rent his property and became sort of street homeless in Brighton. And he's died in a, a house fire in a squat. And I sort of talk about this and I talk about it because I say that there's quite a lot of bereavement and loss in the books as well. But I know that sometimes when you're holding things inside, it's really hard to talk about bereavement and loss to other people because you're dealing with your own feelings and then you have to deal with somebody else's reactions. But actually you can find yourselves in books so for me, it feels a really big responsibility about what I put in books and what young people see there. 
and how they see themselves. Because even though the contemporary books and the issues that I deal with are quite tough, I also want there to be hope because I just think young people are incredibly strong and resilient as well. It's really interesting what you say about responsibility. And I suppose in light of what we're going through right now with lockdown and reading about fake news too, you try to focus your novels on true representation of society. I suppose, but I think all books can be in a sense. And I suppose I don't set out that way. I start off with characters. But I also <laughs> I say to young people, I'm a bit like Hulk, that I'm permanently angry. So when I wrote Indigo Donut, um, I had no idea what I was going to write because I had the two-book deal. Um, but it was also at a time when um, foster children, if they were living with their foster carers, were supposed to leave the family when they were 18. And I remember thinking my, my own daughter was like 15 or 16, really responsible, you know, when she's 18, it'll be a time for celebration, not saying, now it leaves the house. And I think that made me incredibly angry. So when I was writing about uh, somebody who's in foster care, I felt it really important for me to represent what her truth was, but also to sort of feeding some messages about what, what it's like to be in that, that situation. And I've been really lucky that I have had really good responses for young people who are care experienced, who have actually seen themselves in a book or a version of themselves. So I think, yes, I think that is incredible great um, responsibility. Mm. Um, I mean, the, the other thing I suppose I remember is when those sort of days before the internet uh, at school, we used to have this little book club. So they used to give you these little brochures with the books in it and you'd circle it and take it back to your, your family and get your £2.99 and then buy the book. And one of the books we had was um, Rima Godden's The Didikoi, which was the book that the BBC TV series Kizzy was based on. And it was about a young gypsy heritage woman who uh, left a community and went to main, uh, mainstream school where she got bullied. And it was, in a sense, the first book I read that was about racism and the first book, I think, where I thought, oh, these things happen to other people. There's a word for it. And you can put these things in books. So hopefully also, you know, these books are an inspiration for other people who feel that they don't see themselves, but they can put themselves in books as well. How do you readdress realism and portray both real endings with real happy endings as well? Yeah, I suppose so, but I do want, I think, hope. So at the end, you know, I think it would be false to give Marlon, for instance, an automatic happy ending in Orange Boy, because there are consequences, and I think that's another thing for books for young adult. There are consequences, but also I thought, want there to be moments of... Um, you know, families come together, friendships that are strengthened, relationships that are strengthened as well. So I do want those, you know, some that hope and happiness there, but actually there are consequences. And quite often for the characters in my books, they're consequences of what older generations have done as well. Because mm. I think you know, there's a lot of blaming young people for things, but actually we set up the internet and, you know, dodgy porn on the internet. Like all your books, Orange Boy has had fabulous reviews, including comments like wonderful, believable characters, it's gripping. What has the response been from your the younger generation? Um, I think what was interesting is, I mean, I had no idea how publishing works because I was always working full time. So for me, it was kind of what I was doing on the side was writing um, and sort of bringing up my daughter. So I sort of didn't focus on it as much as I could have. <laughs> so what was interesting was going to festivals and people saying that, you know, quite often boys don't read. I get a lot of boys by an orange boy and signing it and talking about, you know, uh, their, their own writing. 
Um, I did a tour in Italy in uh, November for my Italian publishers and they had given copies of um, the book in Italian to some schools. So we had lots of conversations about, you know, whether London is really that dangerous, about why Marlon does what he does. And also sort of conversations about what the difference is around if you're a black boy or a white boy, your engagement with the police, even if you're, you know, not a criminal. Um, so that's had some really sort of interesting conversations. And my, I suppose my fear was that it has been described occasionally as a book about gangs, which it really is not. You know, I think that's quite, quite lazy. It's a book about families and family drama and a boy who's one of life's lovely people who gets drawn into something that he doesn't want to, but actually suddenly finds himself performing this other type of masculinity that actually feels quite liberating and powerful. Um, so there's lots of other, so, you know, lots of themes to, to talk about as well as obviously mm. um, The Matrix and um, Star Trek. You began to realise that age 32 are bringing up a young child, that you couldn't see yourself being represented in novels, TVs and films. What was it like writing with a young baby at the start of your career? I think that's, I think that was actually a fundamental difference, really. It's... Um... I never expected to see me, um, but also, you know, I grew up in a really white area, so it was just kind of my norm. Um, when I moved to London, and my daughter is, is, you know, is a proper Londoner, I presume that there'd be lots of books, picture books, especially that have mixed-race families, because we're not that rare. Um, then I'd look, and I'd look, and there'd be nothing. And I was walking um, down the South Bank once and saw a book by, um, oh gosh, I think Helen Stevens called... What About Me, a picture book, and it's got this on the cover, sort of a drawing of a girl called Katie, this kind of big brown face, curly hair. And my nine-month-old baby used to kiss that picture because she thought it was me. And it just made me think that if even a baby can see representation, what the hell am I doing? <laughs> you know, we're writing white <laughs> characters. But it still took me a really long time to do it. Um, and I think that's really part of it also is I think... You know, I'm the first of my generation to be born in the UK. I, I sort of grew up in, in West Sussex and I had no idea how to represent me because I think a lot of the other black characters that I saw were often in areas that were predominantly black. So there'd be like the uh, soap opera, I think, Empire Road that came on, I think, in the 70s and 80s. And I kind of didn't grow up in those communities either. So it's trying to work out who am I and what do I write about that didn't seem such a stereotype. So, you know, I think perhaps it's not coincidence that I had to live in London for many, many years before those books got published, got written and published. Apart from starting to become an author at this stage, what were you working on as well besides this? I mean, when I came to London, I came as a mature student to go to Goldsmiths and did um, a degree in um English and history of art when I was sort of 27 and I thought there's no way in hell am I going back to Haywood <laughs> um, even though that sort of house there which I sort of eventually sold and um, it was that time when you, it was easier to get jobs so I started working in a voluntary sector which I didn't even know existed so one of the first jobs was um, working as um, an advocate for a new project in Newham that was supporting African and Asian parents that are going through child protection so I've done quite a lot of work with organisations, particularly around social justice and um, equality. So I've worked with organisations that work with uh, prisoners and families of prisoners, um, with young people in care. So there have always been those type of jobs. And I think what that's taught me is that there are so many stories out there and that the stories and the rhetoric, when we go back to fake news, you know, the idea that 
prisons are a holiday camp. Oh, they are so not. Mm. And all those other alternative stories and voices that don't get heard and stories that don't get heard are still swirling around us. And I think a lot of those have ended up in, in, in my books. What would you advise to a younger generation if they are interested in writing right now? I think I always start off saying even something really basic that actually to be a writer, you don't need to spell. That's what technology is there is there for. That to be a writer, you don't have to put 400 adjectives before a noun because that's not your voice. That you can tell stories in so many different ways. You can make lists, you can do mind maps, you can draw, uh, you can do diaries, uh, you, can, you can record to audio. Um, I might give them uh, the list, a name or some uh, poets that they could look up on um, YouTube or Vimeo. Um, I'll just talk to them also about just look at the stories in films, look at how Black Panther is like your perfect three act structure, you know, look at the series that you watch, how do they tell stories, stories emerge in lots of different ways. Try and write something, it doesn't matter, it doesn't have to be every day, you don't have to finish it, but just primarily think of your own voice. The writing that you have to do to pass an exam isn't necessarily your voice. You have your own unique voice and think about how you you can use that to tell stories. I suppose I'd like to talk about criticism really. How would you teach young writers to take criticism when beginning to write without putting them off, I suppose? I think for me it's the slight opposite. I think what was interesting was that last year I was a judge for the BBC Young Writers Award. So it's one that's sort of after the 500 words. So it's from, I think, 14 to 18 are the age category. Um, And as a judge, you were were sent, um, I think it's 50 um, pieces that were up to 1,000 words. And you had to uh, choose your top 15 or something like that. Um, and what was, I suppose, upsetting was some of them, were, or many of them are really, really similar because of the way creative writing is taught in schools. So to pass that, you know, you have to have your adjectives, preferably some of them taken from a thesaurus. You know, it was all interchangeable. And I think the ones that we, we like particularly were the ones where actually young people did use their own voice and didn't necessarily have those adjectives, but told a story that sounded like them and something that they really cared about. So I think it's actually the way that we can enable young people to say, this is how you write to pass an exam, but this is how you tell a story that's you. And I think, you know, from now, from primary school, where they're being told, you know, this is these are the elements of a sentence, <laughs> to try and get people out of that is really hard. OK, Patrice, so what is it like when you switch off? How do you switch off? Is there something that really gives you a chance to remove yourself from the world of writing? That's the issue, though, I can't. <laughs> Um, and it's not honestly, it's not even writing. And one of the things I talk about with young people is say, what you know, why do you write? Why are you writer? It's like I, there are so many stories in my head all the time. And every time I go out and you hear a snippet of conversation, that's like another story. So I was kind of saying to them um, that once I was on a train, it was quite early in the morning because I was going, I had to get some, something like a seven twenty-four a.m. train to to Sheffield. So I was getting the local overground sort of standing there because it was still blooming crowded. And um, this argument broke out between this woman who was sitting down and this guy who was standing up. And I think the guy's son had put a crisp packet on a, on a chair or something. The woman took umbrance, quite rightly, but they were just behaving like toddlers shouting abuse at each other, like, you're ugly, you're old. <laughs> and I mean, I'm just thinking, firstly, it's like, how much sugar did you have in your Weetabix? Because I can barely <laughs> yawn at this time of morning, let alone argument. But secondly, I'm just thinking, hey, 
what if they know each other? You know, what if why we're distracted looking at them? There's like aliens searching through our bags for some hidden technology. <laughs> so it's like everything is always a story. So it's really hard to switch off. So my, my, my sort of thing at the moment was I'm always way behind the curve. So I've just watched all of Killing Eve. That killed me for a moment. <laughs> so I just need to find sort of all-inclusive compulsive things to watch that will help me switch off for a while. Because other than that, it's like, oh my gosh, there's another story. <laughs> That was Susie Thorpe talking to Patrice Lawrence. See, that was a really interesting interview. It must have been really, really good speaking to her. Yeah, you're right. It was it was really good to be able to talk with Patrice because she was very honest. A lot of the time in that interview, as you would have heard, she said she's angry, angry that she doesn't see a lot of representation of people of colour in books and children's books and younger books so she it's it's her mission it's her life to be able to do this and I asked her obviously in the interview as well if she has time to switch off and we just heard that she said no she never switches off this is this is what she loves doing so it's an incredible thing really to have that focus just by seeing there was not a lot of representation of herself in stories in films and tv that she felt she had to do it for the sake of her daughter and for people as well, just representing them. I do think, Susie, that things are getting a lot better because you only have to look at television adverts to notice that the representation of different races, it, it, it's much, much better than it used to be. Absolutely, it is. I think it's got a bit to go, though, Linda, but you're absolutely right. Oh, I yeah, it has a bit think, to go, but yeah. I think it's we're getting there. It we're, is. We're on the and, right track. And it was great to have her up talking with us on women yeah she sounded lovely it was really nice you're listening to women making waves 